Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Somewhere between two and 400,000 years ago, our ancestors discovered fire. So for something like a quarter of a million years, we've been cooking. Even so, we still regard some raw food as healthier than cooked food, like salad. And we regard some other raw food as a delicacy, like oysters. Eating raw oysters can be hazardous to your health. Ameripure ensures that it won't be. Ameripure is both a process and a company. The process kills the oyster's harmful bacteria without altering its taste or affecting its natural raw state. The founder and CEO of Ameripure, the company, is Pat Fahey. Pat, welcome out to lunch. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. There's, and you know, there's nothing hazardous about vegetables. You can pull them right out of the dirt, chop them up, and eat them as a salad. But typically, we don't like to leave it at that. For many years, we doused our fresh and healthy raw vegetables with salad dressings that were anything but healthy, uh, containing sugar, artificial flavors, and unpronounceable chemicals. Today, there's a movement toward making salad dressing as healthy as the salad. Locally, Richard Hanley's company, Hanley Foods, is doing just that. Their all-natural salad dressings are in over 300 supermarkets. Richard, welcome out to lunch. Glad to be here. Thank you. Pat, with the mandated health warning that accompanies raw oysters and the setbacks like the BP oil spill that scared a lot of oyster eaters, the raw oyster business is a challenging field. The state of Louisiana and the state of California have both officially recognized your Ameripure process as effectively eliminating the health risk of eating raw oysters. Presumably your plant in Louisiana can't treat every raw oyster that's eaten in America. Are you licensing the technology to other companies across the country or even around the world? We've kicked it around a few times and we've never done it. As we got on, it took about seven or eight years for people to be interested. And then we realized going forward that we're going to lose market share by doing it, quite frankly. So we said, no, let's keep it, let the patents run out if they want to do it. Uh, at such time, they can. So we've never licensed it. So you have a, an operation here in Louisiana, where is it? It's in Franklin, Louisiana, which is between Morgan City and New Iberia, St. Mary Parish. Yeah, yeah, beautiful parish. Now what about, uh, what about in California? California, we have, we have no business there. We don't have, we send, we ship oysters to California twice a week. But you got the stamp of approval from them, I we guess. We have the stamp of approval. California was the first state to, um, to prohibit Gulf oysters because they were having five, six deaths every year. Oh, wow. um, and they were looking to the FDA to do something about it. They didn't, so California just instituted a, a ban, a seasonal ban from April through October, which was really a shot in the arm for us. We found out the Friday before the Monday that it took place. <laughs> and our sales tripled. Wow. So That's true. That was good. Now, there's more competition now. It's not quite what it was then, but... Um, yeah, we just, we produce right here in Louisiana, and this past year, we opened up a facility in Maryland. 
Hollywood, Maryland. I always wanted to go to Hollywood. I yep, this is your chance. You've done yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Now, and what is it? I mean, I obviously don't have a good technical understanding here, but you sort of give the oysters a bath? It's a mild pasteurization very quickly. It's, uh, you, you get your oysters, you grade them, you clean them with high pressure. Uh, we put a high torque rubber band around every oyster which is very labor intensive, obviously. And then they go into a uh, low temp pasteurization tank for 24 minutes. Um, it doesn't cook the oyster, but it heats it sufficiently to kill the vibrio spectrum of bacteria. And then they go into cold water to stop the transfer of heat. And that's it. Um, when it ends up in a restaurant, they just pop it, it looks, acts, feels like a live oyster. In fact, it's not, we've killed it. But you wouldn't know it because it has all of its natural liquor in it. Wow. The, now and Richard, a better shelf life, too. Oh, I, I would imagine. Now, Richard, your marketing material describes your salad dressings as uh, allergen-free, egg-free, soy-free, dairy-free, cholesterol-free, GMO-free, gluten-free, <sighs> less refined, plant-based, and containing no junk. No junk. No junk. That's, yeah, I guess, the that's big right. thing. The intimation is that the regular salad dressing, of, for most people, is just the opposite. You've been quoted as saying that your goal is to take down Hidden Valley, yep. which I really, and they're tough to fight because they're all hidden, you know, but it's a, yeah, yeah, but I'm finding uh, their yeah. <laughs> Now, Hidden Valley is actually owned by the Clorox company, and salad dressing is a big business. Can your company seriously expect to achieve anything like market dominance up against Clorox, Newman's Own, and other multi-million dollar players in the market? Well, that's the goal. I mean, if you think about it, where do you want to buy your salad dressing from, you know, a chemical company like Clorox or a natural <laughs> company in Louisiana, you know, so that's our take on food is smarter food with Lanyap. We want to make world-class products that are good for you, good for the planet, more sustainable, and, you know, uh, in a way that is not just for today or tomorrow, but for the next hundred years, you know, so it doesn't use intensive uh, resources like, well, some of them don't, like uh, eggs, milk, or dairy. And you know, when we think about how tough it is to get shelf space, you've already accomplished a great deal. Yeah, yeah, and that's just uh, me knocking on all the doors of about those 300 stores, you know, uh, saying, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, and this is what we have. And from then, it's uh, really started developing its own following, and we just got picked up in Forbes last month. I saw uh, that. Trying that's to great. work on some, a few national accounts, so. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but we are working the, uh, what do I say, my wife and I, work about 100 hours a week to avoid the 40-hour work week. So we're giving it everything <laughs> we got. <laughs> so Richard, should I expect to see you like on a Segway on I-10, just kind of stopping off at grocery stores along Probably through? so, with like a backpack in my hand and <laughs> banging on some doors, you know? You brought us a lot smiling. of yeah, yeah, you can pretty. <laughs> now, you don't just jump into uh, a national expansion. What are no. the things that, that you're preparing to, to get ready for this? So uh, our big thing was manufacturing. We're about a three-year-old company, and we just uh, worked with a national uh, manufacturer that well, it can handle national growth in the North Shore, and it's what's um, and so that's what we've been waiting for to grow. But it is what's the greatest thing about New Orleans is that it's better than any other city in America to start a food business, and here's why: uh, if you go to like New York, L.A., Chicago, Dallas, they all have. Uh, I mean, your local grocery stores are. Kroger's, Safeway, H-E-B, these massive chains, whereas here it's Bromart, you know, Rouse's, Dornack, Langenstein's. It's family-owned and operated stores. And to be the local guy to say, hey, um, I got this thing, it's local, it's better, it's natural, it's a lot easier to get on the shelf than it is anywhere else. So I'm finding that really 
unique and remarkable here. Now I noticed one of your uh, dressings here is called Sensation. Right. And that's how you got started. You had to basically assemble this by yourself. It was, uh, what was it, used in restaurants? Before? Yeah, uh, so it, Sensation is a staple dressing that originated in the Baton Rouge area. Since then it's been found in many restaurants and cookbooks uh, and celebrity chefs like Emerald, uh, John Besh. Uh, they all have kind of their take on it. It's like a, a Louisiana style of dressing of Romano cheese, lemon, garlic. Uh, it's really good. This one is not plant-based, but it is the first one, and it was our start. Now, were you a salad dressing major in college? Yeah, it was a salad dressing connoisseur, I got yeah, 3.0. 3. <laughs> now, Just Pat, Richard, <laughs> if you listen to this show, you've heard me say at the end of it, all the music on Out to Lunch was written and performed by Mitch Foreman. People who apparently don't have access to Google occasionally email us asking, who is Mitch Foreman? I can tell you this much. Mitch started out as a young man playing piano for Frankie Valley in Las Vegas. He's gone on to play piano with a string of jazz greats, including stints in John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra and the Wayne Shorter Quartet. Mostly, Mitch tours the country and the world with various jazz bands, including his own Mitch Foreman Trio. Today, he's reached the pinnacle of his career. He's not only writing the music for Out to Lunch, but appearing on it. Mitch, welcome to Out to Lunch. Oh, thank you. Now, Mitch, we hear a lot about how the music business has changed and how nobody's making any money from record sales anymore, and the only way to make a living as a musician is to play live. As a jazz musician, you must be kind of ahead of the game, because along with classical, jazz has traditionally been the smallest category of record sales in the country. I assume the only way you've had to make a living uh, is to actually be out there playing. What other revenue streams are there for a jazz piano player? Besides the massive uh out to lunch. Oh yes, that's right. Royalties that so I've that been receiving. So that sets you for 2016, <laughs> but um. exactly. Uh, you know, I do many different things, and there's uh, I do some composing for some TV shows. Um, like the jingles, the, the, the songs I do like music for CBS shows. Like it's kind of the background-ish really? music for about four or five shows. I, record sales are small, smaller than they've been, but. Um, I mean, there are the, I know some people that have developed new ways of like monetizing Spotify and making a huge amount of money off Spotify, which pays very little, but there, there are ways to make money now. Now that's with interesting, because I hear musicians uh, say terrible things about Spotify in terms of their income, right. but there's another way there's to... Just, there's, few, there's one or two guys I know that have got some magical formula to, to make a lot of money off it. So wow. there are ways, and it's a new, you know, there's new technologies and there's new ways that you just have to give up the old, you know, I'm, this is the only way to do it sort of paradigm, you know? And you know, when I'm reading this every uh, every week, I, I notice that Mitchell only has one L. Was that it a cost-saving thing for your parents? <laughs> or <is> that <laughs> and Foreman has no E. <laughs> oh, yes! <that's> <laughs> so, George Foreman Grill. <laughs> I Dad, I, I just, <laughs> and we're not sharing in those profits. That's either. so good. When I was a, a younger man, I went to hear McLaughlin play at least a dozen times in Chicago. You know, there are a lot of people who would say he was the greatest jazz guitarist ever for, you know, for what it's worth. But it was pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so have you ever been on the road? You know, I know with these massive royalties you're getting, I'm sure you don't get No, like I Greyhound. used to go, like, uh, when I was younger, I used to go on the road, like, all the time for, you know, years and every summer in Europe. I, I, it was a lot of fun, and, I mean, I got to play with great people all over the world. That's amazing. So it was been very fortunate. Well, you know, and I'm looking around here and thinking that uh, 
these people had a life before their current career. Now, Richard, you were a, an art director for an ad agency, right? Right and here on Canal Street, right. Wow, and then Pat, you were, you were a speechwriter in Chicago for yeah. a couple of mayors. Wow. Yeah. His, uh, and Mitch, did you do something before music? Were you a male dancer or anything <laughs> like that? Do you want to <laughs> tell us about? You know what, no, I've been uh, just sort of stuck in this music business. There's a little kid. There's a little kid, yeah. That's so great. Yeah. They, uh, did you know you were a prodigy? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I was, I started really young and, oh thanks. I started really young and sort of started working really young. So <laughs> if that's a prodigy, then. Sure. I'm pretty sure it is. No, sure. All right, Pat, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right back to you here. Sure. Do, do people eat oysters outside of here? Like, for instance, I was once talking to a guy in the rice business, and he told me that uh, rice was mainly eaten along the coasts and uh, potatoes were the, were the staple I inside the country. What about oysters? Is it a coastal thing or just about everywhere? All up and down the East Coast, um, all throughout the South. They're very popular in California, Washington, Oregon, um, Texas, very popular. I think when you get in some of your landlocked states, you're not gonna see too many oysters, but they're extremely popular and getting more so. What's happened, I got into this business 20 years ago, and it was primarily the older set, you know, people who had grown up with them. Younger people were not eating oysters, they, weren't, they thought they were gross. And we kind of, you know, you go to enough shows, you, you develop a feel for it. That suddenly changed. Um, young people are flocking to oysters, and they want boutique oysters. They want oysters with a story behind them. They want, you know, they want brands. They want to hear where did it come from, et cetera, and so forth. Were they There's happy? There's been an explosion of farm. Their mother was. Their mother was very happy. Um, actually, most of the farmed oysters are triploids, so they don't really have much of a sex life. Oh, um, gee, that's a shame. They're, little, they're made from seeds, and then they're put into cages, and then they're nurtured over the course of about 18 months, and they become an oyster. Uh, the oysters we eat here, well, they have a sex life. Oh, so, I can tell. You know. Because it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac, right? right? It would look caught. bad if they did They're wild-caught oysters, yeah. So um, they actually reproduce out there. Um, you know, when somebody tells you an oyster, oh, it's, it's, it's milky looking. Well, that means he's been busy, or she's <laughs> been busy. <laughs> wow. So that's not milk. That's not milk. <laughs> Our next guest has written a lovely book. That is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they might hey, try to use that line, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Pat, I got to ask you. Yeah. you know, you've, you've been in this oyster business for 20 years. You were originally from Chicago. Your dad was a Chicago yeah. cop. When did, what brought you here? Delta Queen Steamboat Company. I is that how you physically got here? Or I, I, went, I, I was introduced to um, uh, uh, a billionaire in Chicago who was looking to hire... He was anti-NBA at the time, Sam Zell. Oh, going Sam Zell. And he wanted to hire somebody to come down and fix this thing he had bought from Coca-Cola of New York, which was the Delta Queen Steamboat Company. And, you know, I just pegged myself to I was going to be a journalist or a speechwriter or something, and, and he kind of goaded me and said, I'm giving you a chance. He said, you know, you're too liberal. You don't want to do it, do you? You're afraid of business, aren't you? So I took it. And that's what brought me down here. I did that for 10 years. Whoa. So. And worked for one of the most, you know, fascinating guys in American business. I was gonna, I've seen him interview. I mean, he looks like a tough character. We didn't see Sam all the time, but we'd see him four or five times a year. Enough and to be afraid. Enough to be afraid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, guys, uh, guys, let's do a round of yeah. one quick question. The, these are questions that have come in from listeners, and I'm going to ask you uh, one each. Uh, Pat, I'll start with you. Uh, Pat, this one is from Kelly Jones, who asks... 
do oysters in other parts of the world have the same level of harmful bacteria as here? And is there any of that oyster bacteria, is it caused by pollution or climate change? To make it simple, uh, warm water oysters tend to have higher levels of a naturally occurring bacterium called Vibrio vulnificus and Vibrio parahemolyticus, but particularly vulnificus, and that's the dangerous one. Cold water oysters don't have as high uh, a level of it, but it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere throughout the world. So we're not alone. Um, it's just that in Louisiana and Texas, we produce the most oysters in this country, so the odds are, if people are going to uh, have a problem with them, they'll probably have come from here because we have so many more oysters in the marketplace. So that's where a lot of it comes from. Uh, as for bacteria and things like that, at least in this country, we have um, measures in place where you can't harvest in those areas where, where there is pollution. And it's pretty strictly regulated. Um, so. Vibrio bacteria is perfectly fine for a healthy person. But if you're immunocompromised, uh, really if you're over the age of 50 or 60, maybe you want to be cautious about it. Wow. You know, I've always thought that the batch I make with the horseradish and the Tabasco would kill just about no, anything. No, won't. But, uh, a okay. lot of people think that, but it's <laughs> not true. <laughs> now, Richard, here's a question for you that has come in from Stella Freeman, and Stella wants to know, what exactly is xanthan gum? It is, <laughs> is it something to avoid or is it harmless? Is it like bazooka yeah. bubblegum? What is it? It is bazooka bubblegum. <laughs> Technically, that's its actual origins. Um, the, uh, so I did a lot of research on, you know, how do you take oil and vinegar and make them mesh well? And because at the end of the day, we have a salad dressing, and we want to make sure that you know all the good stuff doesn't like stay clumped up on the side, and all the oil goes down the bottom, and it'll have a, a bad, bad taste. So we looked at different types of gum. Obviously, it's got to be natural. It's got to be non-GMO. It's got to have come from a good you know family of moms and you know, good <laughs> child history. So. Um, Xanthan gum actually originate, you know, like that gumminess, like on old broccoli, how yeah. like that dark green texture, it's kind of gummy. That's kind of the, the bacteria that xanthan gum is. So they basically take that, uh, it's, it's kind of a chemical reaction. They take that, dry it out, and put it into a powder form. So I guess you could say xanthan gum is kind of like dried broccoli in a way. It's the it's that gumminess kind of from broccoli. Wow. That's not much of a marketing plan, by the way. No. It's just like dried broccoli. I hate the name. <laughs> I hate the name. You know, xanthan gum. It starts with an X. I'm like, ah, can we just call it something else <laughs> besides that? Now, Mitch, this is a question from Deborah Feingold. Deborah is a photographer who is responsible for classic portraits of many people, from Madonna to Obama. She's also the author of a new book of musician portraits that's simply called Music. So this is an informed question. Deborah says, Album art record covers, we call them, used to be an important part of marketing a record. Now that vinyl is making a comeback, are musicians talking about record covers again? I haven't seen it that much for me, but, uh, but I think the difference for me has been really just the, the size of the CD versus the size of the album, what is, is oh, yeah. where, where you sort of are, are, it's a much smaller format, and you start thinking about, okay, how does your record cover show up on that little box you get on iTunes or something, you know, right. so it's sort of a different, uh, you know, different, yeah, yeah. different presentation. So you think vinyl will be just kind of a, a small portion I, no, of the I business? No, I think it definitely is coming. I mean, I actually heard that vinyl is outselling CDs or like a couple wow. months ago that it w someone told me that it was making a huge comeback. I just haven't embraced Seen it. those royalties uh, or anything? Well, yeah. Um, yeah. I just haven't. I'm not, just not a big vinyl you fan right now. You just want right to put now. stuff on it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah that's Just let right. me play and yeah. however... 
get to sue anyone, I'm happy yeah, to, it's like happy whatever, to Everything that's old is new again. I could see like wow. these new Lexus, like with the vinyl, you know, you put it in the dash and you put the new Oh one. yeah, <laughs> that would be great. It'd be great with our potholes. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Pat Fahey, Richard Hanley. Louisiana is a relatively small state, but we're blessed by an abundance of natural resources and an ever-increasing pool of creative and talented business people like you guys. You're making a difference both to the economy and our health. We're looking forward to keeping up with both of you and eating more oysters and salad. Uh, thanks, Pat and Richard, for taking the time to join me out to lunch. Thank you for Thank having you, us. Peter. Very impressive. They, now, Mitch Foreman, it's been a pleasure to have you stop by Commanders and have lunch with us. Uh, thanks for all the great music, both on the show and around the world. And, uh, Drop by and see us again sometime. I'd be happy to. Thank you. <laughs> My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Pat Fahey. He's co-owner, founder, and chief operating officer of AmeriPure. Richard Hanley, founder and CEO of Hanley's Foods, and composer and musician Mitchell Foreman. You can find out more about Pat's oysters, Richard's salad dressings, and Mitch's music by following the links on our websites, itsneworleans.com and wwno.org. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday. Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. Our, the producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And our researcher is Matthew Ellison. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music and Out to Lunch. His latest record, Puzzle, is at MitchellForeman.com. You can get the show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows. And you can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites, www.no.org and itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, and these are three good-looking guys that really ought to be on an album covers what they ought to be. Uh, you, can, you can find photos from this show on our website and Facebook page. These photos were taken today by Allison Moon. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers' Comp.